Karen 1% is by Bassi Adam, produced by Ken Rich at Grand Street Recording in Brooklyn. The songs The Frustration of Leaving and Hell Has Come With Me are by Sleep Station, featuring scene music from Ken Rich, Emily Wolf as Marsha, and Catherine Allison as Karen. Here and I'll be Chapter 5 What is it about the spring that quickens my pulse? A note of warmth in the air? The smell of grass and pollen carrying memories of every past season? If information cannot be lost, the past cannot be escaped. It embeds itself in every object and every sensation waiting for me to cross its path. Like a virus with one potential host. What is it about a red flower that makes me consider my brown skin? There are no black princesses with dumb boy voices, and everyone knows brown princesses have straight flowy hair, like Keisha. I had not come below the swings to join the princess club. It was the roses near the fence. They'd been growing all year, and now the teachers offered to help us cut them to take home or to pin our hair. I love those red flowers. Their hips. The way their heads turn towards the sun. I just wanted everyone to know. Looking down between the round petals of a flower, the tinge of a child's taunting voice, and the confused dread that rose in me. The shade I hid under and the thick roots that drank my tears. What is it about trees covered in baby leaves? that makes me consider my vision distorted by salty water. My father seemed glad. He said that the future we are building now will be weaker than the present, and we would have to be strong to survive when society collapsed. That kind of talk was normal for him, and usually I would just ignore it and go play, but this time... For some reason, I felt the hostility in his voice, like he was saying that the kids in school might survive, but only if I died. And for the first time in my life, I thought he was crazy to talk to me and my brother like that. Because I had seen on TV and read books what parents say to kids when they are sad about something in school, and my dad saw the same TV and read the same books too, but he didn't care about what I needed. He just kept being weird. Hmm. Is that when we grow up? The first time you are truly disappointed in your parents? A few weeks before spring, someone, this silly girl, asked me if I support our government. I was brewing a packet of coffee by the sink at the New York Bureau, and she was unwrapping a bowl of pungent, shrink-wrapped fruit she had brought from home. I didn't even know what she meant. The administration gives me orders. There are good presidents and bad presidents and bad secretaries and thoughtless directors and everything in between. But I don't take orders from an administration, from a president, a political party, or an ideology. The government tells me what needs to be done, and I make sure it happens. We call it duty. Why do you think it's so complicated? 
I asked her as spies put their foreheads to prayer rugs, as people whose skin is brown as mine burn from the back to front because their town wasn't part of some imposed peace accord, and as I prepared to steal a man's only love so that no one could discover our bookkeeping error. Well, she did seem impressed by my answer. I think that's what her eyes said. I am no foolish girl. I know the new administration is dangerous, but I also know the resilience of our bureaucracy. Change is foolishly sought and not easily made. That is the joy of working for the United States government. That girl in the playground, by the way, her parents told her to apologize. Some teacher had seen me crying under the blooming tree. We were young, and that kind of thing is normal, but not with me. I never cried back then. So the teacher started asking around. In any ways, something about the new administration reminds me of that time. I was angry at my father, but I believed him. I suppose I thought that he should have lied to me or something. I was reading the news recently, and the new president said, These things don't matter. you got to get with the program. We are going to be tough. And I slipped back into that next day of school with my father's words ringing in my ear when I yelled at that girl. And I thought she was yelling at me, and I pushed her down in the mud from the morning rain, and everyone said, ooh. And I said that no one wants to be a stupid princess anyways. And my friend Depan told me that that girl had been trying to say sorry, and on my desk was a memo directing me to make a recommendation about whether Simon Zoller's funding should be cut based on an investigation into his personal and professional life, and to keep that directive secret from my staff. And I went to the principal's office and I told her that I would say sorry to the girl about her dress, but that I didn't hear her apologizing and I had to be tough. And the principal told me that nobody has to be tough all the time. And I filed that directive away and forgot that it was anyone's idea beside my own. But please, understand, I had learned so many hard lessons in my years as a researcher and an investigator. The first among them is never to take a decision based on a suspicion that two things are the same. Our minds seek patterns, and causality can find us just as easily as self-deception. So I never did stop to consider the nature of my own orders, or that memo. But not just because of the lessons I had learned. If I'm honest with myself, it's because I never wanted to. And I wasn't capable of it. Sometimes I think that my father really did teach me everything I needed to know, in all the ways that he never intended to. But still, I refuse to learn. And now, I'm here. Chapter 6 It would be easy to believe that the agency never thought much of Simon Zoller or the concept of intelligent flight. With so much cash at its disposal, you could argue that Simon's lab was just a place for the agency to stash some hard-won funding until they could find something better to spend it on. Why else would he assign the project's management to me, an exceptionally talented, but inexperienced young woman who might have occasional issues controlling her temper? But I think that's the impression the agency wants to give to all of its contractors. 
anything less than perfection, and we move on to the next obsessive with a crazy idea. The level of the agency's interest is concealed both to the scientist and the outside world. That way, we can take credit for success and either dismiss failure as the price of doing business or destroy those failures entirely. That is the only reasonable explanation for Marsha's continued presence at the agency. I didn't know it at the time, but she probably should have been relieved of duty long before we moved into that raided grow house in Brooklyn. But her background in neurobiology made her indispensable. See, Marsha was one of the few top graduates with that kind of crazy that pulls them into an intelligence agency. Our agency typically recruits adrenaline junkies who might learn to suppress their urges, and they come to believe that Marsha was the only one in her field without capitalist instincts or a family. Her last case ended badly, with blood matted in her hair, dripping down her arms and legs, clothes halfway shredded, struggling to regain consciousness on the bare floor of a police precinct jail cell. I will never understand how she hid this from me. Not just because I'm an eager listener and I considered her a friend from that first drive to meet Simon. I don't think I will ever understand how strong she is or the thickness of the compartments in her mind. It's the one thing for the agency to abuse people, to use the most dedicated among us and grind us to dust, but to be forced to do that to ourselves and to our friends. I think that's why we become what we are. And now that I think of it, that might be why Milton never let me thank him. That's what happens when you give these chicks that militant upbringing, man. You just don't know when to stop being mad. Hey, yo, everyone, everyone's an enemy. I try to explain hostile posture, hostile posture to recruit. I'm telling you, second day out of the academy says, I better stop mansplaining to her. <laughs> <laughs> I know that fucking cunt. I know that. Promoted up the ladder for the same reason this psycho bitch killer gets to sit in her own cell while someone more sensitive or whatever the fuck makes the way over from Washington to give her a hug. You know one of the rings this chick was wearing? Yeah? Found the same one on a body. Man, what did he do to deserve that? Stone cross some bitches, man. Just don't. Surprised she didn't chop his fucking dick off, too. Marsha moaned and began to rise above the patch of blood that dripped off her arms onto the dusty cement floor. Go to hell, you moron. There was more air in her lungs than she thought. Oh, she speaks. He was a self-caricature. Pudgy, with a handlebar mustache. The officer's chair swiveled in her direction about ten feet from the black bars. Did you have an orgasm? I... what? Marsha was on one knee now, wincing under the buzzing fluorescent lights, shading her eyes at the back of her hand. The officer's partner poured a cup of cold water, slowed by his pirouetting effort not to miss a moment of this exchange. Did. You. Come. What the fuck is wrong with you? Marsha spoke to the cement, having given up on standing. Your bloodlust, is it? Satisfied now? Fuck off! 
Is that pussy still slick and bothered? His partner, a thin, younger guy with half-closed lids, red hair, and a perpetually smirking face, dropped the small styrofoam cup in the sink. Jesus, man! He giggled to obscure his genuine shock. Marcia sighed and sat with her back against the bars, head down. She made no effort to do anything about the blood dripping from the tips of her curly hair into her lap. She checked herself briefly for cuts, but she knew that none of this blood was her own, no matter how much she wished it were. The partner offered her a cup, spilling drops down the edges with his shaking hand. She took the water and emptied it onto her forehead. Then she cried. Not wails that come with waves of sorrow or angry tears that overcome clenched teeth. It was a slow, a grinding acknowledgement that she was nothing like who she thought she would be. It was as if Marcia's humanity had been stripped away, and that she felt herself absent, and was still the same person. Like she was so small compared to the parts of herself that she was born with, that her life was just a thin gloss deceptive, cheap, and ultimately, irrelevant. That's how she cried in that cell, smeared with the blood of people she killed. The next time Marsha opened her eyes, Milton stood over her. She looked up at him like he could put an end to this. Like what happened to her was real for now, but could be undone if only he would say some word. Milton did have sort of a wizardly countenance today, standing straighter upright than usual for a man his age. His graying beard was unusually bushy, a bit wider than normal. Marcia's analytic mind was coming back, finding signs that her boss rushed here from home in the middle of a meal. Milton's glasses rested on his nose as he quietly examined Marcia. His eyes were bloodshot in the corners. He'd been drinking wine, she thought perhaps two glasses. His lips were shaded lightly red, shirt sleeves sloppily rolled up just below his elbows. He looked at her the same way when she turned to face him, with sad eyes, as if contemplating the course of Marsha's life which led her to this cell, soaked with her own tears and other people's blood. She looked at him like a reminder that this is still happening. It wasn't even a scarring memory to overcome. Not yet. That would be like a dream. But this nightmare will always continue, Marcia thought. Because she deserved it. And regardless of what she deserved, Marcia had signed a contract to receive whatever was coming. The agency still needed her. Why else would the assistant director have interrupted his dinner to deceive these upstanding rural law enforcement professionals? Milton turned away from the cell. How long has she been like this? She was just about catatonic when she got here. In some kind of shock. I, she started coming to maybe an hour ago. Why hasn't she been cleaned up? We, we wanted to take evidence, but you know, we, get, we got orders from the feds. Hold off examining the victim till someone from some agency had arrived. I, Figured you might give us the okay to officially begin our investigation. Son, you are an idiot. 
I'm taking this suspect into my custody for national security purposes. The paperwork is on your desk. Unlock this cell. So we can, <laughs> we can get it cleaned up for you. Don't bother. Marsha. He turned back toward her, speaking like a father might as he bailed his teenage daughter out of jail for shoplifting. You're with me. Here. Clean it out of your eyes. He said, handing her a handkerchief from his pocket. Milton stood, eyes clenched shut, 
head resting against the wall outside of his bathroom as Marcia showered behind a curtain patterned with blue flowers and gold bells. This cottage had been in his family for two generations. The air inside was stale with dust, but the sight of it was so open. Bay windows, thick with trees and brush, a wooden pier jutting into the cold lake. Milton listened to her grunting, grinding a bar of soap into her skin, stopping only briefly to inhale a few times and rest her sore shoulders. For ten minutes he waited for a break in her pattern, and he became sullen with the weight of his responsibility. Perhaps this isn't the time, he muttered to himself, retreating into a kitchen patterned with cornucopia tiles. What luck, he thought, to have something in the fridge today besides half-empty takeout containers and dark beer. For all of the trappings of mystery and intrigue that surround us, for all the comparatively inflated paychecks and the clothing budget and our offices hidden away in hip neighborhoods across the world, we are... At the end of the day, nothing but soldiers, gloves on a fist. <laughs> and the brilliance of it isn't what they make us do. It's what we do to ourselves, and we blame ourselves. She waited for Milton in his office, curly hair matted against her neck and dripping water down her back. All she could think of as she sat alone was how long it would be take to replace the upholstery in the back seat of his car, and whether he really thought sacrificing his luxury sedan would make up for what happened. Then she saw him, and righteous anger rose in her. How could you send us there? He appeared in the doorway with a white ceramic plate of sandwiches, salami, cheese, and Wonder Bread. You don't really give a shit. You're just afraid. You think I'm broken. Milton placed the plate on his desk and sat opposite her in a crackling brown office chair whose headrest was partway torn open, exposing a layer of brownish cotton dotted with balls of lint. Well, don't worry about it. She began to tremble with rage. Water sprayed from her flopping hair onto the desk and misted over Milton's folded hands. Don't worry about me. I know what I signed. I just thought you would have some fucking discretion. When Marcia caught her breath, she looked to Milton in anguish. He couldn't help but avert his eyes. What happened? <laughs> you're kidding me, right? Please, say that you're fucking kidding me. This is a debriefing, Marcia. I need to know everything from the beginning. She took a slow bite of a sandwich. You know what you signed. Marcia sat straight up and cleared her throat. Milton placed a digital recorder in the middle of his desk. She pressed the record button herself. As you know, we were tracking the shipment of- She looked up at Milton, expectantly until he raised his arms in mock confusion. A shipment of Lem, which is a street name for a new kind of recreational drug with unknown side effects. The only solid information we have about this drug is its existence, and the investigation that I was a part of did not substantively change that fact. She looked up at Milton again. This time, his brows were furrowed in thought until he nodded to himself. Then, he deactivated the recorder, placed it in his drawer, and produced a different recorder. What follows is transcript of that recording. Wait a minute. How did she get the other recording you made? 
even I have a boss, Marsha. He must have stored it online. Yeah. Online and internet only like six people can log into. Hmm. It is troubling. But there is a reason I recruited her. Karen's resourcefulness. No bounds, right? Well, this isn't exactly a friendly trip down memory lane. At least we get to take it together. Come on. I'll grab you a drink. I arrived with the cover named Janie in a convoy outside of Richwood, West Virginia. There was a rocky field maybe 150 acres with one dirt road cutting through from the southwest towards the center and then out northwest. In the middle of that field, there was a warehouse about the size of a two-plane hangar. I arrived with Agent John Bratton. He's been undercover with the Lem Group for approximately six months. Agent Bratton designed a cover story that had him recruit me for a series of difficult but small-scale security tasks designed so that the leadership of the LEM group would take notice of me and invite me to help protect their inner circle. Bratton seems to have advanced to a sort of lieutenant commander role with the group, so when my name came up during one of their meetings, he managed to introduce me without seeming particularly enthusiastic and... They let me in. Before we left for the warehouse, we were told that we would be escorting the leadership and all of the mobile laboratories to Western Pennsylvania. How are you told? Each week, we were delivered a set of 10 throwaway phones, two calls per phone. Each had a serial number pattern that corresponded to the order we were supposed to use them. Bratton and I first met at a motel in Charleston. There were five other people with us, you know, members of the gang, but he was in command, so we were able to get some time alone. The sedan that we took to West Virginia had two dead bodies sealed in the trunk, wrapped with clear plastic and tape, both women. One was maybe 14, the other in her early 40s, possibly the mother. I never found out why they had to be in our car, but I wouldn't let John, Agent Bratton, leave until I could look at their faces. I'll, I'll file a description in my written report. The men we were with, they were xenophobes, but it was as if there was this certainty about them they had no doubt that this would all work out for them. I mean, they were serene. And I just followed Bratton's lead, adopted his mannerisms. He was so reserved, even grew a beard. It was a spotty one, <laughs> but it looked good on him. He kind of has this narrow face otherwise, and with that long nose. Well, I suppose most of them had beards, but with me walking in there with my bouncy little curls and red cheeks, I thought the only reason they believed it was that it was so absurd. 
me as some sort of biologist mercenary. <laughs> you know, whenever I was losing faith, I would think of what you said, Milton, that you chose me for a reason. Only now, I know that that was an insult. We arrived at the warehouse without incident. The bodies were pulled out of our trunks as soon as we came to a stop and carried somewhere over these guys' shoulders. I didn't see where and I couldn't really look. Our orders were to be outside, to stand watch while the leadership finished preparing the convoy, whatever that meant. Really, all these people were just milling around, trading gossip about how their leader had gotten his hands on such a potent designer drug. All of the men were all so casually dedicated. It made me think their numbers must be huge, but then wouldn't people have heard of them? Honestly, I found them fascinating. Patrolling a field in West Virginia at daybreak with sidearms taped to their backs and holstered to their ankles and underneath their jackets. The expectant feeling that something great was going to happen for each and every one of them. Like, they had all made up their minds a long time ago, and this was just another read-through of the script. Well, I suppose I'm just delaying now. The situation deteriorated quickly at that warehouse, and I believe that as a result, Bratton's cover story will fall apart. Not right away, but it's just a matter of time. How did you come to that conclusion. The gang was attacked at their time of departure. It's obvious. Their investigation into the leaker will begin immediately, and then they and they keep such detailed records. Duty rosters, arrival times, what level of information each member is privy to. But Agent Bratton, he's a resourceful man. He told me that he had been coordinating one of the leadership's security details for months. He shot three local police officers in separate incidents in adjoining counties. The police never found a link between those shootings, and that raised some eyebrows, in a good way, of course. But they might see his heroics in a different light now. Well, we stood outside the warehouse for about an hour, watching the sun turn orange, until Bratton got a text on his throwaway phone. It said that the leadership was ready to ship out with the mobile labs. Bratton and I didn't know our final destination, nothing more specific than Western Pennsylvania anyway. So the warehouse starts creaking and it opens like a garage door. Inside were five cars, a 16-wheeler, and two black vans. They crawled out of there in a line while Agent Bratton and I jogged back to our escort vehicle. Before you, before you describe the incident, I need more background on your cover story. I will tell it in the order that it makes sense to me. Marsha, you're very emotional right now. You think that- I think I found you in a jail cell, curled up in the fetal position, covered with blood. Marsha, who wouldn't be emotional? But I need these details while you're still sharp. Before you tell me how they died, do you, do you understand that? (sighs) 
There was a man Bratton was working with at the agency, and he was our failsafe. He worked for the LEM group at a low level, not seeking advancement and totally separate from Bratton's influence in the organization. Basically, we could compare orders with his to try to get a head start on the leadership if they suspected anything of us. Bill Carlton was his name. The new idea was that I would get assigned a task with Bill's team and we would let everyone with us think he had this love at first sight thing and that we had taken great lengths to try to hide it. So the person who had caught Janie and Bill together would spread gossip about it all the way up the command chain. And since Bill had never been in the same room with Agent Bratton, that would add depth to our cover story. I don't think it was a stupid plan. It was unnecessary. But he was convinced that there would be rumors about us, even if there wasn't one about me first. And it worked so well. It's funny. I don't think I felt anything more rewarding in this agency than pretending to be in love with Bill and hiding it like we were in high school. Agent Bratton had said he'd even heard a rumor about a stolen kiss during a stakeout and that the leadership had a running joke about laundering the money with the matchmaking business. I think what makes Agent Carlton so effective is that he feels so strongly. Like, his face would get red when he spoke up about protecting the other members, his brothers. Or when he had so much trouble catching his breath when we almost got caught raiding a medical device supplier. The idea that he could take one look at me and fall in love, it just made sense. And the idea that something good and pure might come out of this, I think that appealed to everyone, made it seem like more of a family than, well, a gang. Thinking about that, I guess what happened next made sense too. Just as the last car in the convoy pulled out of the warehouse, we saw this plume of dust rise up from the northeast corner of the fields. There wasn't really any time to react. I mean, they came in on us full speed and they knew that we would be most vulnerable at that exact moment. The lead attacking vehicle was a black armored van. Then behind that, they had a bunch of government cars, cruisers. And it's hard to say how many, but it wasn't even, they were outgunned. They opened fire immediately out of the windows of the moving cars and crouching behind the doors. I mean, it was a firefight. I could tell there were agency cars firing on us, so I fired a couple of token rounds into the dirt and fell back to Bratton's position, which was behind one of the vans in our main convoy. So I asked him, like, what the hell is going on? But he had his back to me. I hadn't seen at first that John was talking into his lapel, asking for instructions, and he didn't turn to acknowledge me for a few moments. And the first thing he did was point over the hood of the car and yell, look! I did look at him like he was crazy. The main fight hadn't reached us, but you could hear bullets skipping off the far side of the van. But he insisted, so I peeked over the hood and there was Agent Carlton running across the field with a flanking group of agents. Did you recognize any of them? No, but I'm so new. I had the feeling some of them might have been FBI and maybe it was their tactics or... Maybe I had to make them somehow different in my head. I I don't know. But 
Bratton told me they were with the agency and they all knew that they were disobeying orders and that they were fair game because we have direct orders not to abandon this operation. So I think I just yelled at him, fair game? And he didn't miss a beat. Shoot to kill. We are going to lure them into the warehouse. You run the cars on the far side of the building and take everyone you can find with you. Then box the attackers in with the automatic weapons in the trunk. And he hands me a key. He tried to run back towards the warehouse, but I caught his shirt and pulled him back to me. And I asked, we're just supposed to kill each other now? Like, who gave us that order? Who gave the order, Marsha? You gave that order, Milton. You said we should shoot to kill so the gang wouldn't have anyone to interrogate. Sir, they just wanted to stop this refined lem from hitting the streets. They heard about its supposed side effects. Do you know how many people in the agency come from families that have been totally destroyed by meth? And for so many people in the agency, their first evidence that they belonged here is that they resisted the pressure to try, even once, and forced themselves into this parallel obsession? Like, do you know how many people here have had this thought in the back of their heads that if they could go back in time and stop heroin from ever happening so that their mothers and their brothers and their sisters can stop being slaves and love them back for just one interrupted day? I reviewed the psychological profiles of all of our agents. And your order was shoot to kill? Like, don't you fucking care? Like, at least a little bit? Agent Bratton led the leadership and their main guard back into the warehouse, shooting all the way so that Agent Carlton's men would see that they were falling back. I followed Bratton's orders, and I ran to the other side of the warehouse, but I was only able to grab one man on the way. To that point, I'd seen two injured, three dead on our side, and it's hard to say for the other side, but I imagine you received a casualty report and you know how they died. And those weren't ordinary rounds in that truck. I mean, they weren't ordinary guns. I'd never seen anything like that before. I'd never even heard of it. Any details you provide about the ammunition will be redacted from this report. It burned men alive. Like, their screams, Milton. We're facing a group of our own agents, and you ordered us to kill them. Like, why? So we could find out how some drug was made? Was that worth our own people? People you've trained? I mean, you know their families, Milton. You've, you've held their children. Milton didn't react. He just stared ahead. He asked himself the same question before he drove out to West Virginia to pull Marcia out of prison. And now she recited the only thought he could complete. When regret passed over him, Marcia was quietly sobbing into her hands. Milton waited patiently, but he didn't offer a shoulder or a tissue. 
He searched for words, but all he could find was the steady red glow of the recorder. On. Marcia returned to her statement as if she had never stopped. Once Bratton lured the agents into the entryway of the warehouse, me and one of the gang's guards opened fire from two machine gun positions on their left flank. Their forward attack group was cut down right away. The ones we didn't split in half were melting into the ground. I, I tried to go back and finish them, but we, we were still under fire. One agent, even younger than me, with these big fat cheeks, screamed the entire time. He was calling for his mother. Like, <laughs> his office might be down the hall from mine. Bill Carlton was hiding with the group of them behind an armored van. But they were like all out of position at that point. We gave Bratton's group enough time to get their explosives out of the trucks, but I don't think they wanted to risk the building falling on us now that most of the attackers were dead anyway. So the guards threw a flashbang grenade and that was enough to make Bill back out into the open. He was my boyfriend. Everyone thought that he was. I mean, they thought that we were in love. And it was so easy to pretend with him. But all that was in my head when I thought that he might move out of his cover was that he's a traitor to the gang. And I had better be the one to shoot him because otherwise they'll think that I was in on it. So when Bill Carlton backed away, holding his ears, trying to open his eyes, I fired a burst into his side. He cried out and fell to his knees, almost facing me. I only hesitated to aim. I fired around into his chest and he just collapsed. It felt like for one moment, everything in that chaos came still and the gang member next to me just, just glared at me, slack-jawed. I felt like the agents who weren't dead lowered their guns and shook their heads at me with grimaces and this raw disgust on their faces. And I, I just, I feel like the evil fucks who rung that gang just smiled at me with sharp toothpicks in their mouths, just cackling at how vicious I had become, how vicious they made me. But none of that really happened, right? Because. It doesn't matter that Bill is dead. The gang still had a handful of agents to kill. Bratton is still undercover protecting whatever is in that trailer. I'm gonna keep working for the agency that perpetuates the secret and the agency will put a few more stars on the wall. Bill's protests will never be known and we're the only ones who understand what they died for. And I know Bill Carlton didn't understand. Not, not really. That's the worst part of all. I don't like what I've become, Milton, and that's the thing. But what about this agency? Like, what are we all becoming? Well, fine. Once Agent Carlton bled out into the cement, their ranks became disorganized. A couple of agents tried to defend themselves as they pulled back, and then they started running. 
Bratton and a few others went off to chase them down. Just then, a few more fleeing agents were right on top of us. The gang member fighting beside me had a hunting knife. It got stuck in the stomach of one agent. He looked really young, Hispanic guy, and just the look on his face. Another agent tackled and shot the gang member, and I took the hunting knife from the... and I stabbed him in the back. Then I got back to that gun mount, and I killed another agent who was running at me. Then I heard the heavy click, and I was out too. I tried to get off the gun. I was a target there, but I tripped and fell over those bodies laying beside me. My head must have hit the concrete. The next thing I remember, I was on my back, holding this agent's wrist to try to stop him from driving his knife into me. All of a sudden, I'm covered in blood. Bratton is standing over me. He just takes my head in his hands and he says, don't move. And then he puts his head against mine and covers my eyes with his palms and just yells out, she's gone. And then I wake up in that cell with those fucking asshole cops. I guess I'm a dead woman now. I wish it were true. I, I really do. Come. 